another Dishcast. And this is a special edition because we have breaking news. The British Conservative Party is in turmoil and in the process of electing a new Conservative Party leader who will become Britain's next Prime Minister. And we just, this is recording on Wednesday afternoon, so we just got the final two. Two people called Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Uh, both of whom you've probably never heard of, but uh, or at least heard only marginally of, but we're going to get to the bottom of that. And to do this, and the person we've been able to get to talk to us about this and tell us what's going on in the United Kingdom, what that means for the UK, for the US, for Europe, for Ukraine. And it's Fraser Nelson, who's currently the editor of The Spectator in London and a columnist for The Daily Telegraph. And he serves on the board of the Centre for Social Justice a centre-right think tank based in the UK. But everyone knows Fraser as the brilliant and gifted editor of The Spectator. It's a cracking magazine. I think it's one of the best magazines in the English-speaking world, and always has been. And it has a legion of storied former editors, including one, Boris Johnson, who preceded Fraser by a certain amount of time. I met Fraser properly a few years ago when I was going over there to talk about Boris and figuring out what's happening with the Tories. So now we have him. And it's wonderful to have you, Fraser. Thank you. Welcome to the Dishcast. It's a great pleasure. I'm going to start the way I start with most of these interviews, which is tell us where you were born and grew up. I was born. I'm a military kid. I was born in, in Cornwall. My dad was with the Royal Air Force. I was there for six months. Then I grew up in the Scottish Highlands, where the other end of the country, also good for a search and rescue, which my dad was doing. And I had a pretty apolitical background, I would say. And that's, that life changed. It was pretty straightforward, normal, and changed a lot when I was 13, when we moved to Cyprus, again with the military. And lived there for a few years, and then to Glasgow University, and then to journalism in London. Wow. Tell me about growing up in the Highlands of Scotland. Now, for American listeners, that's, that's, that's way the fuck up, up there, right? <laughs> it's not, there's Scotland, there's Glasgow and Edinburgh, and there's a sort of belt relatively close to the English border. Forgive me for being crude about this, but the Highlands is, a, is, is how much further north is that? Oh, it's, well, I would say is nothing much, but we Highlanders think that anything less, less than a day's journey is nothing much. It's it's about four or five hundred miles upwards, and it's, I guess, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, I was there only a few weeks ago. You get beautiful long evenings, fantastic summers, and sure, the winters are a little bit cold, but you feel on your own, I mean, you know, you could argue that it's a world away, that to you, if you're a Highlander, you think that Glasgow and Edinburgh are based basically part of Assassinac South as well. You know, they might as well be in England. And and it was, well, my family are all from there. I've got to my family tree recently and found out that for pretty much from the 1650s, nobody in my family had strayed within sort of 100 miles radius of where I was brought up. So we were, it's, I miss it a great deal. And it's very far removed from the city life I've got now. Yeah, what, is, what are the people like you went to, what was your school like? I'm just curious. Did you live in a small town or a, a, a bigger town? Yeah, I, I grew up in a, I grew up 
up in these, a town called Nair, and it's a fishing town. It's relatively small. It's one of these seaside resorts, which was known for having two things, the most hours of sunshine in Scotland, and also being Scotland's capital for outdoor sex as well. They ascertained that in the, an opinion poll. And it's... I must so, say, in Scotland, the opportunities for outdoor sex are somewhat limited. Oh, by, Andrew, by you have way. come in the wrong season, I have to say <laughs> During the summer, they're doing nothing else. So it's, you know, l- lots of attractions, you can see. And the, the flesh pot of the Highlands. It's, it's, a, it's a veritable <laughs> Bacchanalian festival up there all the time. Well, that now we know why they wear kilts, because it's much easier, right? Yeah, you bet. So, and how different is that from the rest of the country? I mean, what, what, what typifies the Highlanders? I guess a sense of individualism. It's the, the idea of seeing as your neighbor somebody who can live slightly further away. We're talking an hour, an hour and a half. I don't know. It's like you, you'd go there for a visit, a coffee, no problem at all. And I can't say they're a completely different species, right? There's no doubt about that. But also Highlands, the Highlands have got the culture, which I think is far superior to the south of Scotland. We've got traditional music, a whole wealth of it, an incredible amount of, of musical culture, which you will get in Nova Scotia, in Canada, but you don't really get much where else in the world. And it's a place where, you know, you've got... It's not particularly, it doesn't have a sectarian Catholic versus Protestants problem as the south of Scotland does. I'm from a Catholic family, an unbroken line of Catholics, where the Reformation never quite reached us. So my family can proudly, you know, trace our Catholicism back a thousand years, which is different to most other Catholics in Britain, where it tends to be, I guess, families like yours, Andrew, kind of Irish immigrant stock. But, you know, it's, it's funny. I didn't think much about when I was growing up there about how different it was. I didn't even really think of myself as being Highland. It was only when I moved to Cyprus. And I began to appreciate the difference between the south of Scotland and the north. And also, when I did move to the south of Scotland, I then found that my Catholicism was a big issue in a way that baffled me. Because at the time, you had people who really didn't like Catholics and Catholicism. You got people being beaten up for their, for their faith. And I, I ended up going into this quite anti-Catholic boarding school where I very quickly found out the issues of, of being Catholic. And that was a, a pretty big cultural awakening for me. And there, it gives you this, this I guess, a sense of Catholicism that I probably wouldn't have maintained had I stayed up there. Because staying up there, it wasn't remarkable. But all of a sudden, if you're one of like three kids in a school, mainly a boarding school, where nobody else is Catholic, then people pick you out for it and you sort of become... I guess you seek more succor in the faith, you identify a lot more with it. So strangely enough, my Catholicism was forged in the Protestant school in the way it wouldn't have been had I just stayed home in the Highlands. That's, that's true for me too, actually. It was going to my secondary school where everyone was uh, Protestant or Church of England that, that, that gave me, even though I did not endure any particular harassment on the ground, just a, some good-natured ribbing every now and again, FTP written occasionally, yeah, uh-huh. and all of these, all of these anti-Catholic things, the like FTP, and also you know there. But the FTP the... means fuck the Pope, just for for the average American, right? Yeah, it certainly does. And it's typically inserted into the chorus of Sweet Caroline. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. Yeah, you know, most people go Sweet, Sweet Caroline. Caroline. Da, da, da. That's when FTP comes in. Really? 
That's yeah. a football match, soccer matches. Uh, yeah, it is actually. So wow. they can get in trouble with that. Uh, anyway, there is a whole sort of. By the way, this isn't Highland. This is, this right, is right, Glasgow, right. and there is a whole kind of. When I was there, anyway, uh, less so now because I think it's all illegal to say that now. And but, but you know, there is a cult because the, the the Glasgow experience, the way that the 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 wave of Catholic immigrants came over there and contrasted with the natives led to this Rangers versus Celtic, Catholic versus mm-hmm. Protestant. People with M small C capital were seen to be Catholic and M A C were Protestant, as in the, the Scottish Max. Of course, my name is Nelson, which is neither, so I was able to slip through in Scotland, in Glasgow without really talking about my Catholicism, which by the way, I almost kept a secret until a few years ago. I just found it brought you a lot more hassle to admit that you're a Catholic than not to, if, if you were to talk about it. But I figured, you know, now that I'm in London, where being Christian is as weird as being Catholic was back up there. It's okay. You have to, you know, pe- some people will have a problem with it, but you get to a certain age where you take that in your stride. This is a, a memory I have way back in 1984, when I was a just an intern at the Telegraph and a man of a famous Tory legendary T.E. Utley, Peter Utley. I asked him, do you think it's possible to be a Catholic and a Tory? Just, I was just kind of uh, teasing it out. And his response was, that's a very good question, dear boy. (laughs) So there was a kind of, there is within conservatism a slight anti-Catholic strain, would you not say? I mean, it is, it is, it is the conservative part, a conservative and unionist party. So it's definitely attached to the Ulster Protestants. Yes. And it's seen in some quarters still as being subversive, as if your loyalties don't rely really with the Queen, they lie with the Pope. I mean, for a, there are still, I think, laws in Britain that uh, the, the heir to the throne can't marry a Catholic, for example. And uh, if, of course, even going to church was illegal for quite some time until fairly late on. But during lockdown, I had the great joy of going back into underground churches that were operating against the law. And it was quite funny because down the places I went to had the apparatus for secret illegal church services, because that, that's what they were doing a couple of centuries ago. They had little churches with walls around them where you couldn't really see you going in and out. And Catholicism has that kind of underground network to fall back on. So j- during lockdown, a lot of that went on. Hmm. And it was quite, I felt quite privileged, actually, to be, to, to be, to be you know, to, to, the chance to, to break the law to practice your faith, I think, is, um, is a great experience. Cyprus. Now, British, the British have a, a base there, presumably, right? So, but, yeah. how did that? How? Did, why did that a big shift? Why was it, what? What did that do to your 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 outlook on the world? Well, I was quite lucky as a military kid that I didn't move around every four years. A lot of them do. So, other than being born in England, I stayed in the Highlands right up until I was thirteen. But eventually, Dad was was moved over there, and then. It became horribly apparent that I wasn't going to be educated in Cyprus. There just weren't the schools out there. I saw it after to go to boarding school. So that was a massive wrench in my life. So sure, I went out there. We lived out there, but, but during term time, I was in school. And then that just parachuted me from one world to another. And nobody in my family has ever gone to university before. My dad didn't even finish school. He left when he was 15, and that was standard. So all of a sudden, I get moved I guess it's a social class thing. I get parachuted amongst people who are from a very different social class than me who are obviously going to go to university. And that's a world I now, I now live in right now. I often think if I hadn't done that, would I be here talking to you now? So that was the biggest thing. It was, it was basically moving expectations from a life trajectory 
where to a uh, another world. And by the way, the military is great for social mobility. I mean, it takes my, you know, like, like my, my my dad, who was a milkman amongst other things, they educated him to university level and he was able to give his family every opportunity in life. And I've got 36 cousins, that's quite a lot, as befits me Catholics. And I certainly look at my life chances versus theirs. And, and I can see that the military gave my family absolutely everything. I had a world-class education and going to Cyprus, of course, you feel in an international crowd as you do if you're growing up in a different country, but that changes your cultural references, you meet a whole bunch of people and you start to think that nothing is really impossible, it lifts your sight. And at the time it was, I guess, because I love the Highlands, I love my family, I love my friends. And I was uprooted from all of that when we went to boarding school, a boarding school which I absolutely hated. It was quite a violent boarding school. It, they're going to bring you up the hard way there. And so, But this experience, which I look back on with no fond memories at all, I guess gave you, ch- changed my worldview and, and put me on the trajectory where, where I am now. So it was a massive upheaval. I hated it at the time. I thought it would, it felt like the end of something, not the start of something. But looking back now, I've had a pretty charmed life, so I can't say I would regret, you know, any single step which eventually led to the the two best things in my life, meeting my wife and having this job. And so you grad- you then moved towards going to university, and t- t- fill, fill, fill me in on that. Well... At the school I was at, going to university was normal. That's what you did. So I did. I I, I scraped and I went initially to. I wanted to do uh, physics, but I ended up in the Institute of Soviet Studies at Glasgow University. And I wanted. I, I was at the time. This was, you know, just the Cold War at the end of it, and people did grow up with this fascination of a Soviet Union. The mindset, communism, there was this great feeling at the time as if there were two real ideologies at war with each other. Of course, I was of a generation where at home we would do drills of what would happen if a nuclear bomb would fall. Um, If you're from a military family, of course, you're always going for these drills. So it felt very visceral to you. And I wanted to understand the other side. I wanted to understand the philosophy, why I felt the the Russians, who were obviously good people, could fervently believe this, why so much of the world was turning into communism and the best arguments over how to defeat it. Of course, that, I, I was a little bit late, as it turned out. By the time I got out of university, it had all, it had all collapsed. It, to be honest, it was all collapsing by the time I got in there anyway. But I still think that it's one of the great unanswered questions right now, just why did so many people fall for this pernicious ideology? And also, and I've always been fascinated by the power of ideas to turn the world upside down. To, and I still think that right now, but ideas are still way more powerful than we give them credit for. We like to think that we're free of philosophy, but of course we're not. We follow an agenda whether we give it a name or whether we don't. In the Cold War, we gave it a name. Now we tend not to, but these ideas are shaping our politics. And I wanted to, at university, understand that a lot better. And of course, when I was at university, I fell into doing student newspapers. And that's when I fell in love with journalism. I guess wanting to be a journalist is more of a disorder than an ambition. You fall in love with it and you feel there's nothing else you can do with your life. So I didn't have any real career plan, but I knew putting that paper together, writing things, shaping shaping new stories, I absolutely knew this is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. 
So I did some work for the Glasgow Herald up there, and which is fantastic. And then I went to a, a journalism school after I graduated. So I did that for a year, and then I joined as a financial reporter with The Times. And so I did that for about a few years until I wanted to go back to Scotland. I was just getting too homesick. And devolution had just happened. There was a Scottish Parliament. We needed somebody to go up there. So I was plucked from the financial pages to the political desk. And up I went to back to Edinburgh. And I thought at the time I'd be going for good. That was it. No more England. No more. I, I was and I remain a very patriotic Scot. I, I go home and I listen to Scottish music, traditional music. I listen to Radio Scotland, you know. I still f- fill my world with that. And I didn't think I'd go back. But the Scottish Parliament was so shocking that within something like nine months, I was itching to come back to London, which I did paradoxically by joining the Scotsman newspaper, leaving the Times, but writing as a political journalist for them in Westminster. And in Westminster, I have stayed for almost 21 years now. How old are you now? Just forgive me for asking. 49. Wow. That's a quite remarkable career. Presumably, your conservative leanings might have begun, I suppose, when analyzing something like the ideology of Soviet communism? Or or, or, or was it something else that kind of emerged? I wouldn't have said then, because then it was more binary. You could be a very patriotic Labour Party member and still and still be against communists. I was My conservatism fell into, put it this way, I realised that I was on the on that side of the divide quite late on, I would say perhaps in my late 20s. Until then, I would have said that I was liberal insofar as I thought about it as well. By the way, I would still say that I am a liberal in the classic kind of Manchester liberal sense of the word. And socially, I'm what, you know, I, I, I think my concern about poverty is probably my, my biggest political interest. But I believe that poverty has been perpetuated by failed socialists and labour policies. So my approach to conservatism was through this. It was actually by reading the reading Irving Kristol and things which made me realise about the arguments which the Americans were having about the welfare state, which we didn't really have over here. Now, looking back, I've always been a believer that the government that governs best governs least. I've always believed that. I've always preferred, you know, Dostoevsky and all the what now regarded as the classic conservative writers. When I look back, I actually think that the most influential thing for my conservatism was this American TV show called The Kids from Fame. Now, when you look back on it now, every episode, absolutely as conservative as they come, because they were teaching about the life lessons, about the futility of, about industrial action, about the importance of creativity, about the menace of regulators, about the, you know, uh, when I look back on these things. The Kids from Fame? Yeah, The Kids from Fame. This was a... a fictionalized school about the New York High School of the Performing Arts. Oh, right, 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 right. This right. had a massive following outside of America. Huh. My point was that the conservative lessons I learned in life weren't from a textbook. Right. They weren't from reading Michael Oakeshott. They were from the cultural observation, soap operas, things I took away from music lyrics and novels, none Ooh. of which at the time seemed to me conservative. Right. But only looking back, when I got involved in politics they all fell into place retrospectively. Mm. What, what, give me a couple of those insights into human nature or human life or human affairs that you would think of as conservative that you got from pop songs or, or from this TV show that seems <laughs> to be more, more popular outside the United States than within it. Give me, give me an example. Well, okay, I can think of, I can think of, okay, I, th- 
I will give you both examples through the medium of the kids from fame, right? Now, here you've got this, this school for very talented Americans, but they were, and they would be taught dance or music or, or, or drama. And then there was one episode where the school inspectors came to close them down because they weren't conforming to the regulation of having enough outdoor gymnasium space. So they had to prove during the episode that their dance routines were as rigorous. But the point there was you had the individuality of the students. You had, sure, a relatively shoddy school, but you would have, but the people, their creativity, their passion, their love for what they wanted to do in life was juxtaposed against the forces of government who would reject anything that could not be fitted into some conforming box. So during that episode, the forces of conformity were defeated and individualism won the day. And then there was the very first episode where, again, you've got these very diverse group of kids. And then you get a rich girl from Upper East Side who's a cellist. And she comes in and she is basically snubbed by the rest of them because she's wealthy, because she's rich, because she's seen to be entitled. And the moral of that episode was that she was actually the victim of bigotry. And the rest of them looked down on her because she didn't conform to their type. And the bigotry takes many forms that you've got to play the hand you're dealt in life. So the idea of there being a natural hierarchy of the oppressed and the oppressor, this is quite often a form of bigotry, which were you, in other words, and people, who, and people who regard themselves as being on the side of the anointed because they think that the oppressed can be the majority force. And that was episode one. Anyway, so those are just, you know, I haven't watched No, I get that. I remember, I remember well, a very powerful moment in my life was actually when I was at Oxford. And like you, I, I hadn't been around people that went to Oxford. I mean, I was learning all this stuff. And I had a slightly, slightly contemptuous attitude towards people who went to Eton, the most prestigious private school. And I once tossed off a kind of line about, God, all those people just awful and just what a bunch of poses and toffs and snobs and all the rest of it and 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 a friend of mine said you know i went there too i didn't choose to go there why are you dismissing all of us as this and i realized yeah the bigotry can go both ways i can be bigoted about people who are in the upper class i'm not i'm reducing them to a a a, 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 a sort of single blob of 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 being when in fact we don't know their lives. I don't know their stories. I don't know whether they have any choice in this. I don't know whether they've reacted well or poorly to their background. You know, that that, that what matters is actually the person. And and that was a that was one of those early lessons where you just think, ah, life is more complicated than some of these structures want us to believe. Yeah, and that's a lesson that I've taken here in the way that we recruit people as a spectator as well. We have got this very unusual system where we've got no we recruit via interns. Interns get promoted. But we don't ask for CVs. We don't even ask for names. We just do an aptitude test. And the aptitude test will come in. We give them a city name, Tokyo, Manhattan, or whatever. Right? And we judge them on the ability. Now, the idea there is that nobody gets marked up or marked down for any reason. You could be rich. You could be to the manor born. You could be incredibly poor and qualify as a normal minority. But you'll be judged only on your merit. Now, I don't know if you'd count that as conservative. It's certainly, it's certainly the way that I think things should be done. And so I think we're the only publication in Britain, probably, probably the world, that recruits that way. And we do that 
rather than say, okay, we want to X many ethnic minority people, we want to get X many people from working class backgrounds, if you just abolish all of that and only look at the aptitude, we ended up with a sort of diversity that we never really expected. We get diversity of ages, for example. We get people who are in their 30s, even their 40s, applying to be interns, wanting a second career. And so you'd be able to see that the diversity, if you see, if you're actually looking for a certain sort of diversity, you probably won't get it. And I'm not quite sure if, if you can say if true conservatism is meritocracy, but it's that meritocratic ideal imbued to me in the episode of The Kids From Fame, which we are, I went on to hold the rest of my life and is now a spectator recruitment policy. When you say aptitude, do you mean a, a, a classic IQ test? Or is oh, it, no, is no, this, no. Oh, no. It's an aptitude. You'll be saying, okay, write a blog, any blog, come up with three headlines for this article, come up with an investigation we should do. We're talking the tasks you would get if you're actually a journalist. Mm-hmm. And... It's very easy on there to see who's got talent and who doesn't. So, uh, and from that, we get two, 200 applications. We will take 12 applicants and typically two of them will get a job and be on the staff. So we have now, I'm now very lucky to be surrounded at the Spectator by the most talented people I think I'll ever work with. Many of whom, have, from pretty diverse backgrounds, but I mean that in all sorts of ways. Nobody gets marked down because they happened to be born to a rich family in the same way as they do for a poor family. So it's, and I think people quite like that as well, but they know that they're there on merit. Uh, and it's so, a lovely thing about The Spectator too, for people who haven't read it, and I, I grew up on it, but it's, it's the old tradition. I mean, the New Republic that I worked for had a similar philosophy when I was there anyway, in terms of the internships being the way to find new voices and new writers, but also an eclectic. So when there's always... A dissenter in there. There's always a liberal in the middle of these Tories. There's always someone being the skunk at the dinner party within the magazine itself, always civilly. But you feel like, oh, these people aren't rigging it for me. There's a a variety of of viewpoints here. Even though it's quite clear that it's primarily a a, a conservative magazine, it, it has all sorts and lots of unpolitical, quirky voices that create this kind of dinner party, really, of... Of, of really wonderful and it's it's doing incredibly well too isn't it i mean how many you've 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 you've, you've increased your readership considerably yeah we have doubled our readership in a magazine market that's fallen by two-thirds and we did a an audit recently and found that we're the fastest growing um, current affairs magazine in the whole of europe so that's pretty good i'm very proud of of, of what the team have achieved here and the funny thing is that as you say andrew that's our our vibe is to give a diversity of opinion. I mean, sure, we are, our centre of gravity would be to the right of centre, but we've got all sorts of voices. During Brexit, we had people who voted to remain and stay in the, the mm-hmm. European Union. We've we got people who, I, I mean, you, you pick up a spectator to find well-argued articles with which you would disagree as well, mm-hmm. with which you disagree. Mm-hmm. And also, we would run way more, for example, book reviews than we do political articles. We, yeah. we care as much about arts and life. And that is a formula which we took from the first ever Spectator, which was published in 1711. And that was a single sheet. At the time, it was revolutionary. And the argument was you'd invent characters there who were very different types, who disagreed with each other, but they used humor as a form to have conversations with each other, and they would disagree civilly. So you would have the country gents, you would have a a, a rich um, boulevardier, you would have an army person. And the, the original spectators showed that culture wars are not inevitable. 
I mean, London in 1711 was riven with culture, but the embers of a civil war were still warm. And the Spectator was created to reject the notion of culture wars, to show that you can passionately disagree with each other and still have a warm, friendly conversation, still have a friendship, and you can tease out the areas of disagreement and it can be good fun. So editorially, that is the mission of The Spectator and the mission which any editor of The Spectator upholds. In many, many ways, it's not my magazine. This is a project which, you know, was started 300 years ago, became weekly in 1828, and God willing, will continue for another few hundred years. Which brings me to one of your illustrious predecessors, who I think today bowed out in the House of Commons with the immortal phrase, hasta la vista, baby, Boris Johnson. Now, he's spectator. I mean, I don't want to get you into trouble. How would you characterize that? It seemed to me, from everything I've read about it, is that it, was, it, was, it had a lot of the flavor of what you're talking about. It was a, it was a fun, lively, diverse, but on the, his editorship somewhat chaotic, and the actual offices became what appears to be what happened in number 10 when he was there, a bit of revolving, a, fe- a sort of traveling feast, drinks, all sorts of sexual activity in every part of the building, including him. So you must be, everyone who got behind Boris after the Theresa May failed to win an agreement to get out of the European Union knew what they were getting, right? You, you, everyone knew the kind of person that Boris was. When I came over to talk to you and others about him a few years ago, everyone said the same thing. And it seemed as if What's happened in the last several years with him is absolutely predictable. The, 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 a, a brilliant, did something big, his own personal foibles and flaws completely overwhelmed the good that he was able to do, and he flounces out in a, in a big scandal. Is that, am I, where am I wrong in, in that understanding? You're only wrong that you miss one part of the Boris story. Yes, you're right, when he was doing my job. It was, he embodied the kind of Merry England vibe he wanted the magazine to project. So we would be very much against, you know, Puritanism. We'd be in favour of people drinking, making merry, making inappropriate advances towards one another in the garden. You know, and that was very much a spectator tradition. And he did only come in like once or twice a week, um, seduce the staff and went home. That was his uh, managerial (laughs) model, right? But here's the thing. It was a massive success, a massive success. It took me something like six years, seven years as editor to get back to the heights which he reached in the sales of that magazine. So he might have come in, had a very eclectic but management style, but he did two things that really made it a success. He hired brilliant people. He was able to spot and inspire fantastic deputies, fantastic columnists. He had that sort of magical gift of putting a team together. And the other one that he inspired in that team energy, confidence, loyalty, and love. Now, he then repeated the trick when he went to be London mayor, because before he became into the House of Parliament, he had the biggest personal mandate in Europe for eight years. He was elected the mayor, the conservative mayor of a Labour city. He seemed to defy gravity. He was a very successful mayor. He appointed 12 deputy mayors, pretty good quality, all of them, very different, diverse people, all incredibly good at what they did. And he was the great mascot, the the morale raiser, the vote winner. It was a formula that had worked in journalism, that worked in, in local government, except London's as big a local government as you can get, really. And the thought was, well, why can't it work then in national government? And by the way, it worked in two things incredibly well. 
He won in 2019 a massive majority for the Conservative Party at a time where the Conservatives had a few months earlier come fifth in the European election polling. Fifth, a dismal place. They went on from that under Boris's management to not only come first, but win almost half of the country's votes in a general election, expunge and vanquish Jeremy Corbyn's brand of of quite hard left socialism, and then succeed in taking Britain out of the European Union to honour the the demand made of the governments by those who voted in that closely fought referendum. So those are two massive political achievements, absolutely massive, winning the majority, taking Britain out of the EU. The problem was that he was a kind of, now going back to my, my Sovietology days, one of the conundrums when you study this is you realise that revolutionaries do not make the best governors. So you can have a Vaclav Havel figure, a Lech Valencia figure, who are brilliant at overthrowing the old regime, but when they come to govern themselves are not particularly good. It's just a different style that's required. You need to settle down, you need to be governing from the day to day. And very few people are able to do that. And Boris Johnson, it turned out, was a revolutionary figure. He completed the revolution of taking Britain out of the European Union. He was he, he did what was necessary to get a majority. But when it came to running a government day to day, he lacked the discipline, lacked the attention span, and the team around him deserted him one by one, saying, "Look, this guy is not who he thought he was. He's not serious. He hasn't got the attention span. He's not going to change." And now I'm- that's that's a very stark difference from the support and loyalty and love that he got from the people he appointed at the Spectator or as, as Mayor of London. So what changed? That is a very good question, because when people around him started to go, that was when I thought that he was beginning to, to lose it. Now, what changed effectively was lockdown. We, when COVID came along, he allowed this advisor, Dominic Cummings, to pretty much take control of his government. And Dominic Cummings is not a illiberal. He's more interested in emerging illiberal conservatism. So sort of far more authoritarian figure. It was very keen on lockdowns. It was very keen. Britain had some of the worst, longest lockdowns out of any Western country. And Boris, he was a kind of liberal figure. He was against lockdown, but he had these instincts. He kept talking about the the mayor of the mayor in Jaws when he kept the beach open despite the dangers being his great heroic figure. But Boris's liberal um, spirit was willing, but his p- governmental flesh was weak. He just wasn't able to deliver on his liberal instincts. He wasn't able to translate what he believed and what he'd written about for twenty years into government. The people who had the the momentum was Dominic Cummings, who will now admit that he was plotting against Boris Johnson from day one, who never particularly liked him. Dominic Cummings saw him as a vehicle for him and his friends to take power. And Boris was outmaneuvered by Dominic Cummings. So eventually he got rid of Dominic Cummings. His, His wife, Carrie, persuaded him that Cummings was working against him. And when that happened, he was simply not able to rebuild the team. So you had to purge of Dominic Cummings and those around him. And then he really struggled to replace them, and he never quite succeeded. But it the, the Cummings strategy, electorally, anyway, let's talk about it that way. It was this, this, this rather genius idea that we're going to, around the, 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 the very many working class people's sense of patriotism and national identity, that, that we are going to 
unite those people who are insecure about what's happening to their own country with people who are insecure with certain social and economic changes. We're going to be not be, we're not going to challenge them in the way that we used to as Tories and in, in making them get on with their own lives. We're going to look after them. We're going to talk to them. And so the electoral majority that we had was this new sort of conservatism, which managed to combine the red wall seats with a Tory shires in a pretty amazing coalition in which the Liberal Dems in the South wilted, Labour wilted in the North, and you had this massive. And Cummings, at least, it seems to me, had some sort of policy idea of how that coalition could be sustained. Did Boris ever understand that? Did he want to do that? Did he have any actual substantive policy ideas to, to implement that? Or was it just this is what we'll do to get into power. This is what we'll do to get us out of the EU. But after that, who knows? Well, here I would give Boris a little bit more credit. I think that he instinctively understood that he was the a candidate who could get a hearing in these northern constituencies. They, he, he agreed with Dominic Cummings that they thought politics was broken. And they wanted somebody who, I guess, partially in the same way with Donald Trump or other insurgent candidates, who seemed to embody rejection of the status quo. Everything about Boris Johnson said outsider. I mean, here, of course, he's a, an Etonian, went to you know the classics first to Oxford, incredibly bright guy, and has great many establishment credentials, but he looked anti-establishment. He, he looked at his, his physical appearance, the way he talked. He looked like an insurgent. And the other thing he had going with him was Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn then was no Tony Blair figure. Here you've got more of a Bernie Sanders figure leading the Labour Party. And Britain had to ask, do you want this, this Bernie Sanders to be running your government? And so many people didn't. And they voted for Boris Johnson, not because they really liked him, because they just wanted to stop the other guy getting in power. And also you had the... So where Boris... You had so many factors coming together, perhaps uniquely. People voted to leave the European Union disproportionately in the north of England in poorer constituencies because they felt that globalisation was not really working out for them. They saw the world moving along in a way which would disadvantage them and their families and, and those around them. And they wanted to... The phrase was take back control. And the main token, the main totemic policy here was border control, to control immigration. And Britain is now way more of an immigrant country than the United States. We've got a far greater proportion of the workforce. I think it's close to 19% of British workers now are foreign born. Now, this happened in a very quick period of time. And there wasn't a xenophobic reaction to this. There was just an impression that companies were, were building and growing by importing workers rather than training locals. And that if you were to leave school, like my dad did, with 50 with no qualifications, you would really struggle to find a place in the economy because they were far better trained immigrants who would work with you with greater qualifications and for less money than you. So there was a sense amongst the big demographic that they were being over overlooked, undervalued, basically seen to be the roadkill of globalization. And, and they were, right? I mean, they had a point. Yeah, they were completely right. They were completely right to vote for Brexit. They were completely right to dial back globalization. Not to not to abolish it, just to think, look, it's gone too far. We're going to just do this on a managed basis. And we're going to come up with a system where, you know, you're going to be forced to pay waiters more money, to, to automate, to, to, 
to basically to come up with a, a labor model, an economic model, which does not assume that you're going to have a never-ending supply of cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And that is what happened. Now you'll hear people say that this is very bad for a bozzy, you can't find the chefs anymore. But you're going to have to pay a lot more. These people are getting a lot more money. They're pretty much getting what they voted for. That's the strange thing. By the way, it wasn't just Boris who noticed this. This has happened pretty much all over Europe. Oh, of course, yes. The and different... in the United States, of course. In the United States, exactly. The difference, the big difference, was a Brexit was the lever that they pulled and it worked. And as a result, populism vanished. So Britain is now the only country in Europe that's got no populist party in Parliament or with any significant support in the opinion polls. Because we managed to, through our responsive democracy, we managed, it's almost like if your shoulder was out of joint, you put your shoulder back, a very painful process. But you had a realignment of the political discussion with popular concerns. And when those two things are realigned, there is no room in the market for populists. They're only, in my view, populism is only ever there where there is a massive constituency not being catered for by the established political parties. So you had, via Boris, via Brexit, a revolution in the Conservative Party, an absolute revolution where they had to go through with the Brexit, which so many of them didn't want. And and those who didn't want it were purged by Boris Johnson. He kicked them, so many of them out of the Conservative Party and rebuilt it. And that sort of spirit gave the Conservatives this revolutionary vibe. Even the word Brexit sounds buccaneering and and daring. And people who want to change all of a sudden saw in Boris Johnson, the guy who delivered that change in the Brexit vote and was about to deliver it again in 2019. And this is why I think Brexit has been a very big success, because we are not going to, there's no Donald Trump figure waiting to come back and stalk British politics. Sometimes Boris is compared to Trump, but it's the reverse. This is how you end up not getting a Trump figure. You end up making sure there's nobody who feels completely abandoned and ignored. And if you were to get a Nigel Farage figure or somebody trying to set up a new party, I don't think they would really succeed. Well, you sound sound a lot like Dominic Cummings when he said to me that, in fact, the, the most interesting thing is that Britain does not have an insurgent far right right now, partly because Boris co-opted it and absorbed it and managed it. And the Conservative Party, in its protean way, managed to maneuver to to co-opt and to bring on board people who would otherwise have over the existing order. But Cummings was also, that's all of Cummings's beliefs too. That's why they worked so well. Yeah. Why, why, why would you not think that getting rid of Cummings was what disoriented Boris, that without him, he didn't really have a consistent agenda or policy that could deliver effectively the populist mandate that he'd been given. Although you can say, and let me just say this, that he did, unlike Trump, he did actually fix the immigration system. We do get out of EU, have a new law in which the country really does have control over its own immigrants in a way that the United States after Trump hasn't because he was unable to do anything. So tell me why Therefore, the, inc- the contradiction here is that Cummings was the one who helped him frame and create the strategy. Getting rid of Cummings from the outside looked as if it was set him adrift. He didn't know where he wanted to go, and he was unable to really marshal those arguments again. Tell me why I'm wrong about that. Well, for, for two reasons. One was that is that lockdown changed a lot of things. Okay. Lockdown was another sort of Brexit-style political earthquake 
that puts people on different divides. And there, I'm not quite sure if you can call it liberal versus illiberal, if you can call it illiberal conservatism. That's certainly what I feared was emerging. And Dominic Cummings was very, very much in favour of that. He was always the one doing everything he could to try to bounce Boris Johnson into authorising lockdowns that Boris didn't want. So when you get a new divide for a anti lockdown, you then end up with people on different sides of that divide. Boris and Dominic Cummings were on different sides of that divide. I see. But then there's the other point, how Cummings was actively working to overthrow and work against him, which he subsequently admitted in his various blogs. He wrote one only a few days ago, saying that, you know, that they only ever saw Boris Johnson as a vehicle for the vote leave political agenda. And he was being kept, kept around as a useful idiot. His analogy was that Boris Johnson was a, a wonky shopping trolley, a shopping trolley that could not be pushed straight. It wouldn't go straight like you want. Now, of course, that analogy has Cummings as the guy pushing the trolley and the prime minister as the trolley. Now, typically in a democracy, the guy who won the election calls the shots and the advisor follows. So it didn't work because Dominic Cummings genuinely saw himself as being the senior of those parties and genuinely would, was out to work against and do things against Boris Johnson's wishes. This is by his own admission. He's on the record saying all of these things. Now, fundamentally, if you're running the country or if you're running a corner shop, you cannot have as your lieutenant somebody who's trying to outwit you and overthrow you and working against you. So that relationship should have ended a long time ago. It should have ended as soon as they won the election. How did he lose the confidence of his then cabinet. I mean, then the people that he'd... Relatively talented people, maybe? I don't know. I mean, are they? When I look at the the current contenders for the conservative leadership after Boris, I can't say I'm hugely impressed with the kind of talent that, that Boris advanced within the party, but I'm, I'm, I'm open to persuasion. But how did he lose? Was it just his temperamental flaws, his inability to get organized, his inability to implement policy? his inability to actually make the government do things that it's sometimes hard to make them do? It was so many things. I'll give you what I regard to be the major moments and the rupture of that relationship. One was his style. He is not a creature of the House of Commons. He is a, a former mayor of London who came in as a backbencher, didn't hang around with them, he didn't really like them. They didn't really like him. They only voted for him as leader because they knew he was an insurgent and their only chance of winning a majority. So it was always a marriage of convenience. There was never really a following. They always resented him. And they also really hated Dominic Cummings. He had the, a contempt for the Conservative Party, he regarded politicians as being imbeciles. He, he basically even resented the system where you need to have an elected politician running a government department. So... But as a result, you would get a number 10 that was behaving like a presidency on top of a parliamentary democracy. So you'd have Cummings and Johnson issuing orders, diktats, saying you do this, you do that, micromanaging. Dominic Cummings would, would summon the advisors of all other departments into his office on a Friday evening just to remind them that this was effectively the office of the president and they were doing what they were told. So there was that personnel resentment all the way along. In a parliamentary democracy, you just cannot run it by giving diktats and behaving like a president. You need to listen to the MPs. You need to build a caucus of support. You need to become a creature of the parliamentary tribes. Successful prime ministers know that. And Boris, because of the incredible way he'd been elected, he thought to himself, and by the way, right to the very end, 
thought to himself, look, this wasn't the Conservative Party's victory, it was my victory. And this is what he would say. To, I know a cabinet member who went in to see him to tell him he should resign. This is two weeks ago. And he was saying, look, it was me who won 14 million votes. The Conservative Party didn't win them. You can't get rid of me because it's my mandate. Now, that's not how they saw it. And of course, in the British parliamentary system, that people vote for a local MP, you don't vote for the prime minister. So he always thought that he could do what he wanted because this, of his deeply personal mandate. So there was his behaviour, the fact that his relationship was part. And then, by the way, there was the tax burden. You've got the highest tax burden in 75 years in this country. That is hurting people, especially when inflation comes up. And then you find that one of the fastest rising costs is the cost of government. Only in April, he, Boris Johnson put up taxes. He promised, like George Bush, not to raise taxes. He made a, a manifesto pledge. He would sign his name under a pledge saying he wouldn't raise taxes. And then he did. So when you violate a promise like that, you lose trust with voters. So all of a sudden, this insurgent, who was different to politicians because he kept his promises, starts to look like everybody else. Then he starts to lose elections. So you've got, obviously, in, in, in the British system, you've got you know, 650 MPs. They will either die now and again, or in this case, they got there were sex scandals. I think there was one MP looking at pornography in the House of Commons. He was caught and he had to go. Another guy was caught grooming a, a child for sexual offences. He had to go as well. So you've got two politicians who resigned in pretty embarrassing circumstances. And then when the election comes along, Boris Johnson cannot win that election. So the opinion polls then show his popularity is low, as low as Theresa May, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, as low as any of these guys at their worst. So you had this leader who the Conservative Party was tolerating because he had this kind of magical gift of winning elections. And all of a sudden, he doesn't have the gift anymore. When you look at political popularity, it doesn't go up and down. It basically steadily goes down in a line. And once it sinks, it doesn't really recover. And they figured that Boris Johnson had lost that. Now, you've also got Dominic Cummings makes another entry here. He is furious about having been fired and makes it his mission to destroy Boris Johnson. So he will release all sorts of information. He'll give it, he's got a very good network of journalists in the press. So he would have embarrassing stories about Boris Johnson's worst secrets. And then we end up with what we call the Partygate scandal, where during lockdown, when Boris Johnson was sending the police after people who would meet for, for, in the park for a coffee, that was illegal under lockdown. But he, meanwhile, or his staff were having these drinks nights, regular drinks nights, in violation of the law. They were investigated and they were found to have breached the law. So you get scandal after scandal after scandal, and through it all comes a theme, not just of disorganisation, but of mendacity and lack of trust. So the public lose trust of Boris Johnson, but then the fear which really finished him off was yet another sex scandal. Now, I'm not quite sure if Boris's priapic nature made these sex scandals more likely to happen in the House of Commons, but there was a, a chap called Chris Pincher who was the chief whip. Now, he was known for being a bit handsy, and he had a few too many drinks at the Carlton Club, one of these sort of upmarket conservative clubs in, in St. James, about 10 minutes from Westminster. And he was behaving inappropriately with another man, and he resigned the next day. Now, you might think, OK, so what, he got a bit drunk, he perhaps was a bit too forward, and he resigned. And then Boris Johnson said, or number 10 said, they had no idea about his personal record. 
and that was found to be untrue. So you had a very rare example of a civil servant, a former civil servant, who came up and said, look, the Prime Minister is lying. We gave a report about Chris Pincher, and the Prime Minister knew about his behaviour. So when he said he didn't know, he was lying. That was the moment where various cabinet members individually thought, OK, this can't go on anymore. This, I spoke to one of the leadership contenders who was saying, look, it looks like the Conservative Party is behaving like the Catholic Church and moving a bad priest from place to place. This is what it seemed like with Chris Pincher. You knew the guy had a problem and yet you covered it up. I can't go along with this. So you ended up with a flurry of resignations, so many resignations that Boris Johnson literally could not fill his government because he couldn't find enough MPs to serve in it. But then that that comes as as a, as the last straw in a sense that he was constantly caught out in telling whoppers. And when I went over there three years ago and talked to people, the number of people that told me firsthand that he had lied to their face about something he didn't have lied about was almost 100%. So this is something that we knew about him. And, and the, the lying, the inability to tell the truth, the quick and easy response was integral to this man's nature, right? I wouldn't put it quite so harshly as that. I know mm. that his critics would say that he was utterly mendacious. I'd These say were his we- friends, Brazen. I mean, I-, I talked to his friends and they were like, yes, well, he lied to me about that. Yes, to my face. Yes, I don't know why he did that. I think he likes to try to please people. That's his weakness. Mm. And always tries to make out that people come to visit. Yes, I agree with you. I will do this. I will do that. And I think in his heart, he sort of means it at a time. He probably means... By the way, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to defend him here. He told a whole bunch of lies, most indefensibly, that he wouldn't increase taxes, and many did. But I wouldn't say that he was quite the, the, the kind of mendacious, wicked, deplorable character as he's made out to be. I think that he, he, was, he hated having to make choices. He hated in politics. I mean, if you, if, you do, if you agree with person A, you're going to really annoy person B. He hated that about life. So but that wanted, is life. That's that politics. That is life, I know. And he had, by the way, sailed very successfully through life, being an incredibly successful figure, because his showman persona would help him win. He was able to you know, build teams here. And when you look at the, I mean, let's take the women, which of whom he's had a fair number. Like they, they would say that he, you know, that he believed what he was telling them at the time, that, that they would, that he couldn't, that he would love them and only them, etc. And he wasn't lying to them. He just convinced himself of it. So again, this isn't to defend him, but this is what he was like. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, a, ver- a very lonely figure as well, with very few real friends. That's the funny thing. I didn't know very many people who were close to him at all. He is like a sad clown, in a way, who had this incredible lifelike and very attractive persona, a comic persona. But when it came down to it, very, very few people ever really knew Boris Johnson. That is also something that so many people told me, that this character is lonely and and a solitary figure in so many ways. What a a tragic sort of end in, in May. And politics is full of tragic ends. But moving forward, so Boris has left the Conservative Party with essentially a slightly confused message at this point about what it is, what it wants to do. You had a variety of arguments coming from all kind of wings, that old Thatcherite, new kind of Johnsonite 
populist, semi-populist. Then you also have fiscal conservatism coming back. You have question of social liberalism and so on and so forth. But we are now down to two. I think one thing that Americans are kind of amazed by is here's this conservative party and suddenly we have almost no white men running for, for, for the... We had one, I think, Tom Tugendhat, really, serious candidate. You have Rishi Sunak, a, a non-white son of immigrants. Or he, was he actually an immigrant? No, he was born here. Born he was born here, yeah. but his parents were immigrants, yeah. yeah. You had then you had Kemi Badenich, a Nigerian who came here when she was 16 years old. And she, by the way, was the member's favourite. If she'd made it to the last two, she would have been the new prime minister. And I think she would have been remarkable. I mean, here we've got, this isn't somebody like Obama who's born in America. This is somebody who is African, who is very much in touch with, with her roots and had absolutely electrified the Conservative Party membership who were all set to vote for her. She was the insurgent candidate, perhaps too much of an insurgent, because she didn't make enough friends amongst the MPs. And it's the, the lawmakers who choose the final two. So they decided that Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss should go through and that Kemi Badenich, who is the, who was, the polls show she would have beaten any other contender had it gone to the final stage of the members. She has been denied the, this. So we, we would very easily have been looking at not just Britain's first African-British prime minister, if you want to call it that, but somebody who really would have changed the story of conservatism. I mean, I used to work with Kemi. She was here at The Spectator as a oh, really? editor. Tell yeah, me so. about her. She's an incredible woman. Now, she is a, she's very visceral. And her, her view of politics is very much informed by growing up in Nigeria. I remember the, the first time that I was, um, I, the mob came after me digitally. You know, I'm sure it's happened to you once or twice, Andrew. Every and, now and again. Uh, and she, Kemi was saying, you know, this sort of thing, this is what I can see online now with cancel culture, is what I would see in Nigeria. I would see a lynch mob where a mob would go after some crook or somebody villain and they tried to kill him and everybody would come together and try to give him a kick and then they go back about their business. And this is part of human nature. And so she regarded, she was quite often refer the things that she saw and the cultural values back to when she was growing up. She would always see in Britain the country she admired from afar. So she would see our, our liberal values, she would see our constitution, she would see all these things that she admired and loved. She, this, she grew up seeing Britain as the shining, the shining city on the hill. Then she came to it, and then she was like, my God, these are the values which I believe in Nigeria. You guys don't take them seriously here. So why are you not defending them? Why are you not defending your, your, your culture? Why are you not defending your faith? Why are you allowing these, these idiots from campus to come and write over, write off all of your, your cultural achievements. So she was really quite angry about what she regarded as the inability of the British Conservative Party to defend and protect and conserve Britain. So you had this very strange combination of this, of this African black woman who would come over and talk in terms, jingoistic terms, about Britain, Britain's values, how great it was to be British, why she was so pro-Brexit at the time, when the magazine was, and my spectator was ambivalent about it, she would take me aside and just saying, what's the matter with you? Don't you believe in this country? You know, and so she has this, this raw passion, this raw energy of somebody who chose Britain, you know, not just chose conservatism, but who chose Britain, and is able to make Brits feel very good 
about the country that they live in. So she's got this optimism as well as radicalism. And she's very much against big state conservatism. She's She would think the government's got, you know, way too big out of its use. And also she was, she took the culture wars very seriously. So she would, to her, this was conservatism. What you might call the anti-work, I'm not quite sure what you'd call it, but her argument was that every generation of conservatives has things which rally them to the cause. Now, in my generation, it might have been communism versus capitalism. For another one, it might have been you know, the tax burden or you know, it might be defense spending. I'm not quite sure what makes you a conservative. But she was saying that to this new generation, the experience that they will have in their colleges and universities of being targeted by political correctness, by work, the gender, gender pronouns, that this will create people who've got a visceral hatred of the kind of nascent authoritarianism and what she saw is the rekindling of racism, a racism that will look at somebody and define them by their skin colour, which she thought he moved away from. Kerry's got a, Kerry's got a, a white husband, obviously mixed-race kids, and all of a sudden she's finding herself going back into a world where she and her husband and her kids were going to be judged by the colour of their skin, not the content of their character. She would quote that Martin Luther King quote quite a lot and saying we need to get back to MLK. So she would very passionately say that these, and declare, she declared, the said, we, the Conservative Party, are, we stand against critical race theory. This is how, what we define ourselves against. So she would take a very principled stand on this. And Boris Johnson didn't know what was going on. He didn't want to fight this war. He was like, whoa, isn't this just crazy people on Twitter? Why are you talking about it? Does it really matter, Kemi? I don't want you to annoy my, my friends on the left. Now, Kemi has got this, how shall I put it, a sort of Nigerian approach to conflict resolution. She wanted to defeat the enemy. The way that she saw it, when Boris Johnson would see a stakeholder to be assuaged, she would see an enemy to be weakened. She figured you need to make arguments, win them muscularly and decisively, and not pussyfoot around. So, now, she was not a little, really... A little reminiscent of Thatcher. <sighs> Yeah, you just can in say style, that. In, in clarity of, of, of idea and in passion. Yeah, yeah, certainly the way that Thatcher saw it, this was an existential crisis, fat, fighting for our country against, you know, in Thatcher's era, a communist threat. Kemi would see workery as being a proper ideological enemy, an enemy which, which conservatism was the remedy to. I think she's absolutely correct, actually. <laughs> Go on, but carry on. Yeah. Well, anyway, so, anyway, so her, now perhaps this wasn't her time. She'd only been a politician for five years. She hadn't run a government department. Hers was an audacious bid. And nobody expected her to get anywhere as close as she did. And there are still big questions as to whether she could have delivered half of the things that she's spoken about because they were just words to her. But she, you know, demonstrated the audacity of hope, a British version of that movie. And there were a great many people who were all set to go for her. And... During this leadership campaign for two weeks, I've just been stunned by the number of converts that are to the cause of Kemi Baden. And I remember, you know, seeing Obama and speaking that first Democrat conference when he was elected senator and thought, as a lot of people did, there is a future president. Not now, but he's a future. And I think I see the same with Kemi Baden. This was not her time, but her time will come and it might not be long until it does. Yes. So tell us about the last two that are remaining. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Now, I'll give you my rough impressions of them from over here, and they are incredibly rough. Sunak looks like a smooth, Cameron-style, competent, conservative type. He looks the part. 
is what Trump would like in terms of his good looks. Truss looks like a a bit of a dime store Thatcher <laughs> from this perspective. And a little weirdly bellicose and a bit like well, can't we can't use the S word anymore about any woman in politics, but but not terribly impressed. And my so my instinct from all of this way away just instinctually is probably Sunak, but Sunak has these problems with his wife having this super amount of money and and not paying enough taxes on it in Britain. He is himself obviously a globalist just by his very career and nature. And so who give me your handicap of both of them and what you think and who you think they are. Right. Well, right now, Liz Truss is the bookmaker's favorite to win and become the next prime minister. If you look at the betting markets, you know, there are no really good indicators in this race, but they've got her odds on 55% chance. So 45, very close, by the way. Now, she is somebody who would certainly be, Sunak attacks her as Reaganite, for example. In other words, she's for low tax, starve the beast, let's come up with an immediate £30 billion tax cut. This economy, she's saying, is never really going to take off until the government gets off people's back. And that means we have to borrow some more money to do it, then, then so be it. So that is where she, that is her style. She is, she was a liberal Democrat, so a different political party before she was a conservative. And she voted Remain, she wasn't a Brexiteer either. And to many Tories, that makes her, puts her on the dark side. She's a former liberal Democrat Remainer. How can she be a conservative leader? But in a strange way, she has now become a louder and more vocal championship for classic conservative values than Rishi Sunak. So she's talking about being strong on defence, of cutting back regulation, of cutting back the size of the government, and of doing it quickly and radically and saying that the British government, Britain as a country, has now is never really going to go anywhere. The economy is going to stall because of Rishi Sunak's taxes. On a personal basis, she's never, well, she's very spirited, but she she's never been in a department where she's had to deliver what she dangles. Now, we're speaking earlier about, about Boris Johnson and about how he has quite a, a well-worked-out 20-year journalistic career ex- expounding values that he was unable to translate into policies when in government. So this is the big question. You might talk a good game, but can you deliver? Will you find that the winds will blow you down a high-tax, high-spending direction because you lack the resolve to carry it through? So that's the big question mark about Liz Truss. She's never really, for all of the time she's been in government, and she has never really been in a department where she would have to achieve that. And so she's less polished than Rishi Sunak, but she speaks conservative values. And, And I've also been at Conservative Party conferences where the delegates and the members, who after all are the only ones voting in this race, they love her. They're queuing out the door to listen to her. She she loves them. She's got this great relationship with them. So she is a great one, like a revivalist preacher talking to the, the faithful. She's a base politician. Like. Yeah, and the base lover. And Rishi, on the other hand, not so much. Rishi, he would say that he is a serious version of Liz Trust, that he does want this low-tax economy, he passionately believes in it, but you need to be practical. Unless you've got a plan, then you shouldn't be taken seriously. So now he is from a very different background. He was he went to Winchester College, one of the most elite schools in Britain, and in Britain, which is still very class-obsessed. He is absolutely, you know, one of the richest. He's got a wife who's richer than the Queen, and he's probably the richest politician ever to serve in a democratic British government, 
when he was the finance minister, he redecorated 11 Downing Street from his own pocket. Um, it's just you know, incredible sort of spending that he's got. But he has probably got the best grip of government of, than any politician that I've spoken to. I'm absolutely amazed when I speak to him that he knows the mechanics, he knows what the markets are doing. He's got a Bloomberg terminal on his desk. He's a former trader who made his own fortune before he married his, his mega rich, rich wife. He is also, having spoken to him a lot, I would say quite radical and private. He will talk about how depressed he is that the welfare state hasn't been reformed, why are there are too many people on out-of-work benefits when they could be working, why has there been no school reform, why has there been no health service reform. So he, I'm in the lucky position where I speak to lots of politicians behind the scenes. Nobody has been more impatient than Rishi Sunak to get radical reform done to the government machine. But here's the puzzle. He is not standing right now as a radical reformer. He's not even standing as a tax cutter. He is standing as the candidate of a status quo. He's getting a lot of support from the, the, the conservative left, from the big state conservatives, as being the sort of sensible middle-of-the-road person who's standing up to this crazy right-wing person, Liz Truss. So he is playing not to the base, but kind of to the establishment in a way. And that is a very dangerous course of action if the people who are going to choose you are Conservative Party members who still resent you very much for the taxes that you raised when you were Chancellor. Now, he's got a, his excuse for raising the taxes. He says it in private and in public is this. Look, Boris Johnson was this crazy spender. He wanted to spend money the whole time. But I cannot, in good conscience, allow that to go in my national debt. I need to persuade Boris, and by the way, the rest of the big state conservatives, that when they vote for a bigger spending, they're voting for higher taxes. They don't seem to get that message, so I'm going to force it down their throats I'm going to increase taxes. They're going to hate it, but they should maybe think about that the next time they vote for bigger spending. So you can see where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. It's a fiscally conservative position. Mm -hmm. He thinks the problem is a party who have collectively have lost their have lost their marbles, and they're wanting to spend, spend, spend to every given problem. Spending is the answer, and he's been trying to argue against it. He argued against lockdown. He argued against a lot of his spending, but he was always out argued, out maneuvered. So you've got here somebody who's being seen as a big state conservative who has probably done more to fight big state conservatism inside the government than anybody else. But he's not standing in a ticket to reversing any of that. Now, maybe that's because he doesn't think you can win an election if you promise to cut back government spending. Because people will say, well, look, Rishi is going to cut your hospital, cut your school bill. So maybe he has got a sort of secret agenda that he's going to implement. Or there's another theory. Maybe he's just given up. Maybe he thinks that the government is now so out of control that what he offers, in effect, is elegantly managed decline. Hmm. And he, the, the, the results now are how many votes did he get? I mean, and what is the balance now? Oh, you have it in front. I don't mind. He got like he got the most votes of parliamentary voters, and Truss came in second. It was quite close, but he did get the most votes. But that really doesn't matter now. All that matters is his popularity with the Tory party members. Now, I'll tell you the big problem he's now got. He thinks that he is easily more competent than this Truss, that there are going to be 10 head-to-head debates between them. And during those debates, she will stand exposed as somebody who has learned a few sound bites but has got no agenda whatsoever for putting them into action. That she's somebody who's 
who is like a, a Gillian Anderson kind of Thatcher actress rather than the politician of any kind of substance. And he believes that he has got all of the answers. But he would need 10 debates to make the point. He doesn't have 10 debates. The Conservative Party has decided they're going to do postal voting, and that's going to start in 10 days' time. So really, he's got about 10 days to change this perception of him, to try to... Because remember, it's not just, you know, your listeners, Andrew, who don't really know who Rishi Sunak is. Most of the British public don't really know who he is. They only see him as Boris Johnson's finance guy, the guy who wrote lots of welfare checks during lockdown, who gave people 85% of their salary during furlough, who ran up £300 billion of national debt and printed the money. They see him as a big spender who ultimately started to raise taxes and was quite unpopular. They can't really see his fundamental point that that he is the more competent organiser, he's got more convincing answers to all range of subjects, that if you put him head to head to Liz Truss, he will know he will give he'll be way more convincing than her. He hasn't he's he's got one one debate to make that point, and I'm not sure he'll do it in time. Of course he now has ten days to campaign, right? I mean that's I mean, that was Boris's great strength, his ability to get out there and buoy people and cajole people and inspire people. And you need that skill for a general election as well. Does Sunak have that? Does he have that ability to go out there and mix it up and to, and to talk to regular rank-and-file members? Yes, I think he does. I think this is the surprise about Sunak. When you look at somebody as rich as him, you think he might be remote, he might be not really be able to talk to your average man in the street. He's the reverse. He's an incredibly humble person, actually. Very easy to talk to. And I think that people will warm to him and they can see this kind of, this, this energy. The problem is that just he looks too slick. He looks a bit too perfect like he was assembled by a sort of committee of political experts. And he never puts a a word wrong, never puts a foot wrong. As opposed to Boris, who came across as a a bungler who wasn't even sure which which town he was in half the time when he was campaigning. But people loved that because here he was, the lovable clown. Whereas Rishi Sunak just looks like another sort of Tony Blair, David Cameron, shiny politician of a certain type, a multimillionaire who went to the elite school and then he went to Oxford, from the same sort of sausage factory that gave you the other machine-created politicians. Now, of course, what we haven't mentioned yet is his skin colour. He would be Britain's first non-white prime minister. Now, might that be held against him? I could be wrong here, but I really don't think that's an issue right now. You can look at where, you know, you had a Conservative Party contest where, as you were saying earlier, the majority of candidates, when there are eight of them standing, were women in ethnic minorities, white men were in the, in the minority. I think we're past the stage now where that is a net negative. I'd say it's probably a net positive. Right that's, what I, that's my suspicion. And in fact, it would be a solid thing for the Tories to say, look, we represent, we also represent all ethnic minorities as well as, as, as a white British, and that this is an example of a conservative opportunity society in which anybody can succeed. And it's not, he didn't get this job by quotas or by some kind of hideous condescension towards racial minorities. He got it obviously on his own skills and his own talents and abilities. And he represents children of immigrants in in an in entrepreneurial society that's done well for himself. That sounds like a good story to tell, but but I guess we'll see. He has to go out there. Is, so 10 days before the postal voting starts. And are there a couple of debates before then, presumably? 
there's one, and then there's going to be a lot more after that. And this is the problem. It doesn't, Liz Truss will not agree to any more debates. It doesn't suit her. Every debate is a vulnerability for her against him. So she will really avoid doing any head-to-heads with him. And he will, as you say, campaign like a madman for every hour he's got between now and when postal voting starts. Who do you, who do you want, Fraser? I really didn't know who we're going to back. When you look at the candidates who has, is making most of the arguments a spectator has been making, that's Liz Truss. When Boris Johnson voted to raise taxes, we were really against it. We told said it was an outrageous breach of trust. But there was only one cabinet member who made the argument inside the cabinet, and that was Liz Truss. And she was shouted down by Rishi Sunak. So if I want to see who ticks most of the the boxes, which we have been pursuing in The Spectator, the campaigns that we tend to theme on, make our campaign themes, then Liz Truss comes closest to that. We've been very critical of Sunak's windfall tax. But then again, during lockdown, Sunak was the only guy trying to argue against it, and Liz Truss went along with, with lockdown. Of the two of them, I think M. Sunak would be easily the best manager. And knowing him personally, as I do... I think his his knowledge of detail will give us wins, or would give us wins. That is hard to imagine right now. I think he could very easily fix the education system, for example. He could do something like that simply because he he can put things together faster and better than any politician that I've ever met. I mean, during the lockdown, he came up with just amazing schemes that he put together in the matter of days. He's got a technical ability and a flair unmatched. But does he have the conservative instincts? Does he actually have what it takes to shrink government and re-empower the public over government? But he also was for Brexit and Liz Truss was against it. Yes. I, I can't imagine he, why he couldn't use that. Why can't that be? Why would you vote for a Remainer, a Lib Dem Remainer against me, this, Im- this son of immigrants who was for Brexit, who's, who's, who's got us through this epidemic well, sure, he will use it, but he is quite gentlemanly, Rishi Sunak. Mm. He doesn't like attacking people. He will not like attacking her. She's got no compulsion at all in, in attacking him. Sorry, I say. She's got no problem at all at attacking him. She does it all the time. Right. But it's, uh, the other thing is, of course, is she's become a born-again Brexiteer. So she's talking, oh, Rishi isn't taking advantage of Brexit. He's not cutting taxes in the way that we should do, not cutting regulation. So I, to listen to the two of them, it's not as if he comes across as a more authentic Brexiteer, although he did take a, a political risk in backing it. And Liz Truss played it safe politically. That's why she backed David Cameron and remained. Right. I mean, he could say we, this is a second Theresa May, although he may, may, that may not successfully make that argument. The, well, yes, he, he could say that she, but she is. And, and also her critics will say that she is, she's got hawkish instincts which aren't backed up by much knowledge of world affairs. So she's way more likely to get Britain caught up in foreign policy entanglements mm-hmm. than he would be. Mm-hmm. And But more to the point that she doesn't think things through, so she won't be able to deliver what she dangles. And even if she did, then the tax cuts she's proposing are all would be stuck in the national debt, would make inflation worse and would sink the economy. Mm-hmm. So that's what he's arguing against her. Mm-hmm. But right now, in a cost-of-living crisis... People would quite like some tax cuts, and I think they wouldn't really mind how they were paid for. Hmm. But it looks to me as if maybe this is the Tories are going to lose the next election. I mean, that 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 up against 
my old schoolmate Keir Starmer, they're going to have a struggle. Well, I, we can't predict that at this point, obviously, so maybe it's no point in. But of the two candidates, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, do you think who, who would you think is most effective against Starmer? I think Sunak would be most effective against Starmer because I think St- Sunak would be far better in one-to-one debates. Sunak just comes across as a guy you'd more trust to run a government. Mm. So when the Tory, when the decision is being made not by the Conservative base, but by your average mm. voter, and you want to go for competence, mm. I think Sunak would stand a far better chance of doing that. He's also, I mean, he's so shiny in these debates, he comes across as a game show host sometimes. That's how professional he is. Keir Starmer is not a very good debater. He's incredibly boring to listen to. Sunak is is more interesting. Mm. Liz Truss will come across as perhaps a slightly more risky option if you're not a Conservative voter, simply because she can easily be portrayed as a kind of Thatcher epigone. It's harder to portray Sunak as that. So I guess on the basis of that, I'm almost talking myself into backing Sunak ahead of Truss. <laughs> but I would say this, that I think that the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement in Britain is long overdue a really big discussion about the mess it got itself into. So I want to wait and reserve judgment and hear their arguments. I'm really looking forward to them. How did we get into this big state conservatism mess? How did we manage to come up with a Brexit revolution and then have a conservative party that's got no idea what to do with that revolution? They've got almost no, having achieved all of these extra powers, they simply have got no ideas to use them. And also, what, what about education? Nobody's spoken about school reform for a long, long time. What about this National Health Service, which will soon occupy almost half of all government spending? It's just this socialised black hole that money keeps being thrown into without anything coming out of it. There are so many really big discussions the Conservative Party needs to have right now. And I think a leadership election is the main opportunity, the main window it's got to try to work out where it went wrong. The problem is that Brexit lobotomized the Conservatives for a very long time. They were so in love with the idea of themselves as revolutionaries that they just dropped any interest in normal government. So for the last six years, they've just closed their eyes, thought of Brexit, and thought that it will somehow magically bring them a more efficient government, a smaller state, and tax cuts. It's done the opposite. It is, weirdly, we've seen the Europeanization of the British economy with more regulations, with higher taxes, because conservatives haven't been thinking in first principles. They've just lost interest in the things that used to that used to animate them. And by the way, this is why Liz Truss didn't vote for Brexit, and I can understand it. She thought that it get, got in the way of thinking what conservatives need to be thinking about. Like, how do you pass power back to communities? How do you transform public services? And And she was completely right in that previously the most the people who'd been fighting the most for conservative causes dropped all of those causes at once and adopted Brexit as if they dropped one religion and picked up another. And we're finding out now that Brexit is not intrinsically a good or a bad thing. It just it's an opportunity. It means that you can achieve a lot more if you use the power as well. But similarly you can fall a lot further if you use those powers badly. And right now it's really in the balance which of those two ways the Conservative Party is going to go. So this is why I want to reserve my judgment and listen to these debates and really hope the Conservative Party has the debate that's been avoiding for six years now. It has, as a party, suffered Brexit derangement syndrome. 
And Boris, I'm afraid to say, came to embody the just how vacant it was, what a vacant position it was to shout about Brexit and not really say anything else. So rather than sleepwalk into big government conservatism, rather than become the kind of government which they warned us against, the conservatives have got a chance to change course now, but not very not very long left, just two years. And right now, I'm really not sure if they can take that chance. Fraser, you've been incredibly generous with your time. This has been extraordinarily informative and interesting. And I'm incredibly grateful for you doing this. Thank you very much for joining us, talking about your past, talking about conservative conservatism as such, and helping us understand a little bit better the travails and achievements of, of Boris Johnson. I, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing. I know it's late there and you've stayed up late and I really appreciate you doing this. Andrew, I can't thank you enough for inviting me on. I never miss an episode of this. And it's, you know, it's, you, you, you know, you, you, you are one of my journalistic heroes. You're one of the, you're, you're, your substack is one of the best things that's happened to journalism recently. So to be a small part of this oh. is a huge honor for me. Thank you. You're incredibly kind. We have coming up, we have Larry Summers coming up. We also have Sorab Armory if I've pronounced his name right. Those are two interesting guests we're going to have in the next few weeks. We're kicking ass here up in Provincetown. I want to ask you another favor. If you love this podcast, if you appreciate the fact that I'm not selling you a new lawnmower or a new mortgage, if you like the fact that we don't have <laughs> ads anywhere, please support us. It's our two-year anniversary and we're, we're doing really well, but we could always do more, more and uh, we could always do with more support. So please subscribe. It's not that not that much. You get a you get a podcast, you get a whole package on a Friday. And we're having a great time with it. Fraser, thank you so much. And we will see you all the next week. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>